thank you everyone for listening into our podcast traveling time with books where my co-host kamini and i have the opportunity to talk to our favorite kind of people authors about their remarkable books on indian history uh, kamini is an award winning faculty at kings business school london and i'm uh, the ceo of book osmia which means the smell of books india's largest publisher for kids by kids and while we lead very diverse work journeys i think we are united um, on a lot of fronts um, for our love for the poetry for romanticizing our hometowns of delhi and lucknow um, our common alma mater in i am lucknow where we went to b school and the conviction that knowing history is for everyone so i hope you enjoy our passion project this podcast which is now on audible spotify and all other major streaming platforms uh, today we are very excited to host uh, anirudh um, an award winning history researcher and writer he writes uh, the weekly thinking medieval column for the print his work has received grants from the princeton center for digital humanities and the india foundation of arts and he's also the host of echoes of india a history podcast and yutha the indian military history podcast we'll be talking to him about his very well reviewed and acclaimed book lords of the deccan so welcome anirudh thank you so much for writing this book first up thank you for having me it's a pleasure to be here right so i think most of us agree that history of the south in general and the deccan in particular has been kind of uh, conspicuous by its absence or um, rather under representation in a popular narrative and mind space uh, your book caters to this massive unfulfilled need uh, bringing the deccan alive for us from 6th century to 12th century ce with all its splendor action and glory so as a reader um, i absorbed with or how powerful the leaders of this region emerge and their impact not just on the territories in their vicinity but on the subcontinent itself i must confess however as a person in her 40s i felt exhausted by the relentless pursuits and unfulfilled ambitions so <laughs> now it's, it's the contrast in the eras that we live in is just just too 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 wide <laughs> i thought um so now i think to get started anirudh the we what we'll do is we'll have a quick rapid fire uh, sort of uh, round where we ask you just tiny questions and would love to have um one or two word answers one line answers it may put you in a spot but yeah this is like for you to be sprightly thinking on your uh, feet yeah. all right so uh, here we go first question what differentiates a good historian from a bad one from a dangerous one so i think what um, fundamentally i think that the job of a historian is to understand that the job of history is not to make us feel good about ourselves but rather to make us question ourselves i think a dangerous historian is one who looks to history specifically to find narratives that conform to modern day political ideas especially um i think a bad historian is one who does it without necessarily that intent but ends up using a similar kind of methodology and a good historian is one who actually understands that the past is essentially a different world and allows it to speak and to exist on its own terms wonderful very elegant and yeah i think a very Uh, something to be very mindful of in our times where so many books so many narratives um, historical narratives are out there um, something for everyone to be mindful of um, who to go with so thanks for that um, second one if you could choose to live in the times of anyone you have documented uh, what time period would it be and who would that person be and let's say that you have like a cloak of invisibility to document the life of the person without worrying that your head will be off and it doesn't have to be all glory so could you think of one person one character from all that you've written about yes um i would like to observe the life of the stapati or the architect who designed the kailashnatha temple at ellora um mm-hmm. i'm I genuinely think that he must have been a man of extraordinary breadth and genius um versed in iconography in engineering in mathematics uh, in logistics in management um and also a man of extraordinary vision and ambition um and the fact that um I mean there are some theories as to who he may have been and what his name was but by and large there's no actual official sources from his time telling us 
who this person was and what kind of life he must have led. Um, and I have my suspicions. I believe that he may have been um, a veteran of the sculpture industry of Elora. Uh, once again, one of the great sites of human artistic history. And the kind of environment he lived in with essentially the medieval Deccan equivalents of Michelangelo and Raphael or um, even Dada, uh, to think of a more recent artist, um, would have been truly extraordinary to witness. So if I could choose one time in history to actually be in, it would be that. Wow. That's awesome. And I read that uh, drift in your book also, where you said we don't know who that, you know, what that would be like, who was that person, never given enough credit. And uh, too bad for the warring overlords that they lost out to, <laughs> you know, all their fighting couldn't get your attention. <laughs> uh, Kamini, you have a few shoot away. Yes, I mean, yeah, completely with you on the Elora Temple. Having visited it, it is just incredible to imagine that someone actually did this in the time period that it took place in. Just really, really marvelous. Uh, so yeah, please do find that person. Please can, you know, see if you can find historical sources and actually write about them. We would love to read uh, about it. Um, okay, so my question for you is, if there was one thing that you could change about the way history is taught in schools right now, uh, what would it be? I would say that history, the purpose of history should not be to inculcate particular um, ideas and ways of seeing the past in children um, or to be or to be precise. I think that the the way that history is taught in India is very much with the intention of inculcating nationalism or to inculcate a particular kind of national identity. And the problem with that is that um, should the ones who are setting the syllabus not um, be broad minded in their approach to history, then you risk uh, history being very easily being appropriated by malicious actors um, to sow seeds of majoritarianism or resentment against particular communities and most dangerously to um, valorize violence. Um, I think Nidhi made quite an astute observation just now in the previous question about how all the warring kings and emperors don't really hold my attention because I think that in the 21st century, when for the first time or in human history, when we have generally managed to bring healthcare and education and basic rights to the vast majority of India's population, it is very odd that we're taken with people who, as much as they're dressed up, their violence in, you know, of course, the language of charisma and, you know, courtly culture and so on, were fundamentally very lawless people who thought nothing of killing whatever number of people to fulfill their ambitions. Um, and these are the same people who, if you were to look at school textbooks, the violence is completely glossed over and they're made out to be essentially icons of nationalism. I think that is very important that in schools, children are taught to use history rather than to reinforce national pride or whatever is the political trend of the day, to actually be taught to use history to understand the nature of human societies and how people, and most importantly, how power operate. Um, I think that the lessons that history teaches us are eternal and continue to, to repeat themselves. And especially with majoritarianism, considering that we have so much experience with its consequence in the 20th century, it's very strange that we are gleefully going back to it in the 21st. Um, and I think that this is very much the result of history not being allowed to actually educate people and teach them how to think, but rather being used to pretty much force a particular way of thinking of, you know, glorious kings and eternal nations and national identities uh, onto young minds. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, selective uh picking of evidence and telling of a story certainly sort of plays a part in that and i think uh, i read somewhere i think in one of your interviews that you talk about the fact that we like to believe that hindu kings were not very violent but if you actually look at the evidence that we have you will find that it's anything but that and we need to really acknowledge uh whatever the evidence is telling us and understand it for what what it is it's the way power works for example exactly. uh that you're saying yeah uh, so, okay, my last question in the rapid fire round for you is to ask you about a book that you read this year that you'd recommend to our listeners. Well, it's, it's a little out there, uh, but I would heavily recommend this book called Tutankhamun's Tomb by Toby, I think, Wilkerson or Wilkinson. Um, absolutely fascinating study that looks at a number of objects from the tomb of the Egyptian boy pharaoh Tutankhamun. Um, and groups them thematically to actually understand 
the nature of ancient Egyptian civilization itself. Um, and to me, it's, it's just so fascinating. And really, I, I find the Bronze Age really interesting. Um, and I don't think we really talk about enough in India or really excavate um, Harappan sites with the kind of rigor that they are really due. Um, because the Bronze Age is arguably the first era of globalization in the grand history of human civilization. Um, and if you were to look at the art and culture of any Bronze Age a civilization from the Minoans to the Egyptians to, of course, the Harappans, you realize that there are people who are extraordinarily sophisticated and have a very, very refined sense of art and really live in a very complex world. Um, so to see that really brought alive through material culture was such, such fun to read through. Um, and I really, really hope that at some point we will have archaeological treasure troves like that found in India as well that will allow us to recreate um, cultures with that degree of precision and understanding. Yes, fingers crossed very much on that. We'd all love to have a much better sense of the Harappan civilization, for example, and many other Bronze Age civilizations. Nidhi. Right. It's very interesting. And uh, we touched upon the idea of um, national identity briefly. So I'd follow up with this question. And now we've moved to the slightly longish uh, question answer format. So um, I remember reading uh, this book, I think both Kamini and I had picked up uh, on the history of India's geography, where the author says uh, right in the beginning that one of the persistent misconceptions about Indian history is that Indians have somehow never conceived of themselves as a nation. Um, and I, I, I could understand, like, this is a claim that Bharat has always been Bharat um, kind of a thing. Now, while reading your book, Kanirudh, I couldn't help but observe that what seemed to be the pattern was that while fighting, um, the responsibility of fighting out the raids, whether it is from within, around the region, or um, like you mentioned, in North India by the Tibetans or the conquests of the Mayad Caliphate. Uh, fell to the specific regions which were under attack and their overlords under direct threat, uh, but not to the entirety of the region, that entire or like, you know, all these under an idea of India geographically or any other sense of identity, where everyone came together and said, no, no, it's our job to fight, um, say, the Tibetans away or the Arab invasion away. So was there a notion of India or Bharatvarsh as a homeland or a geographic or cultural identity, which in some way united these warring tribes against, you know, together? So, I mean, I must say that even though it's being repeated very loudly by a large uh, number of political um, actors and activists and also, of course, media organizations, I don't think that just repeating and screaming something endlessly actually makes it objectively true. Um, you might convince people that it's true. And I believe that a lot of folks do think that this concept of Indian identity went back longer than the British like to think, or at least what the British colonial historians told us that it did. Um, I think there's a grain of truth in that, but I don't think that it's exactly the way that um, politicians today actually think it was. Um, for example, I mean, I, I would, I would, I would ask um, when it was very clear that, for example, when the Rashtrakut has invaded the Gangetic Plains, they were very much clear that they were going to attack the Pratiharas and Palas equally. They didn't necessarily see them as their rivals. And similarly, the Pratiharas and Palas neither did they team up against the Tibetans nor did they team up against the Rashtrakutas. Now, what is what I would certainly say is that there is a sense that there are certain kinds of elite cultures that are more similar to each other than they are to the rest of the world. But once again, I don't think that the boundaries are the way that we have been asked to believe today. So I'll give you an example. Um, I actually found out about this just like a couple of months after the book was published. But um, in Multan um, in, uh, and, and also in Sin. Um, where you actually had the presence of Arabs uh, because of the conquest of the uh, Umayyad Caliphate. Um, roughly around the 9th century or so, the primary trading partner, especially of the emirs of Sindh, um, was the Rashtrakuta Empire. 
Um, and there are multiple references from Arab travelers, Muslim Arab travelers at the time, which talk about how the emirs of Sindh um, did not dress like Arabs did, but rather like uh, Deccanese did. So they wore long hair, they had uh, these heavy earrings dangling from their ears, um, and they rode on an elephant to go to the mosque every Friday. Um, and this is hundreds of years before the syncretism of the early modern world, right? So this is very obviously um, in the medieval period. These are Muslims, these are people of Arab descent, and yet they present themselves in ways that you would think of as, uh, as Indian. The reason for that is because First of all, we are looking at elite cultures and we are looking at elite ways of presenting themselves to their local audiences. Um, it's a way of kind of building your identity. So if you if you would think out think about the way that modern Indian politicians behave, all of them will claim claim to worship democracy and so on and so forth. But um, all of us are very familiar with the fact that in practice, every politician from uh, a state's chief minister to, of course, um, the prime minister is more than willing to circumvent the rule of law or to circumvent uh, democratic procedures when it suits them and it suits their political um, ideas and the ideology. Um, and so is the case for medieval power as well. If, if it was convenient for a medieval king to present themselves in a certain way, they would unabashedly do that. Um, and what you see, especially in the period from 600 to 1100, is that for a very large proportion of the Indian Ocean world, um, stretching from Afghanistan all the way to um, Indonesia, um, it becomes useful for elites to present themselves as Sanskrit speakers, um, to adopt a particular kind of attitude towards the body, to, towards bodily beauty, towards um, war, presentation of war, and of course, towards temple building and towards religion. Now, just because they have done that does not automatically make them part of the same nation. It means that they're part of the same kind of elite culture. Um, because when we're saying nation today, when we talk about a nation state, we're talking about a completely different phenomenon in terms of the scale of it. Because medieval states do not have the ability to, or even the interest especially, to educate their citizens and to feed them particular ideas of what a nation looks like or to really impose themselves and to and to create these homogenous narratives so if you were to look at a medieval state and this is something that i really delve into in great detail in the book it does not represent a nation state which is basically uh, like a border that you can draw on a map and to say that this is the territory of this empire um, we took great pains while sketching out the maps in the book for example to make it clear that there are these core areas that are actually controlled by a particular elite and then you have like a sphere of influence around them um but if you were to actually go out to the villages while while a villager might be away might be aware vaguely of a name of a king um they might not actually have interacted with or even seen a king they can go for an entire lifetime without having seen an agent of the state um and, and i think that's a very crucial point to remember because the vast majority of population for most of human history lived out there in the countryside. And if a state is not able to impose itself and its ideology onto those people, and if essentially the activities that the elites are up to, you know, going to war and so on and so forth, are so fundamentally removed from what was actually the lives of the vast majority of people, can you really call that even a nation? Um, so the history that we're looking at in the medieval period is, is is far more complex than I think we're willing to give it credit for. Um, and it, 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 it disagrees with our imagination even because I feel like especially all of us being products of the Indian education system, we are we are we are kind of predisposed towards seeing this. We, for example, we are taught about Ashoka, like he's this essentially Mahatma Gandhi living uh, in 250 BC, like he's this unifier and this inauguration of, of this concept of Indianness. But if you look at the actual archaeological evidence, you'll see the Mauryas had essentially no significant presence in the Deccan. Um, their, their influence and their authority was very much confined to the Gangetic Plains. Now, if that is the case, and and also if, if, if you were to actually think about Ashoka's policies, the stuff that he's talking about, again, we're, we're taught this, this very selective uh, this very selective reading of his edicts, which are all about, again, the ideals of Indian independence, right? So, you know, when he's talking about nonviolence and so on, all this stuff is celebrated. But Ashoka also has inscriptions where he's appointing officials to be looking into women 
who are apparently doing magical rituals that he doesn't approve of. Um, and all kinds of funny, weird things like that, right? So if we're looking at the, so, and you can, you can do the same kind of process of deconstruction for any monarch who I taught of as this kind of icon of pre-modern Indian nationalism, whether you're thinking about Akbar or whether you're thinking about um, Samudra Gupta or any of these historical figures, they're all individuals who exercised authority among a very small group of courtly people in a very select region of the subcontinent. And given the enormous diversity, not only of the people out on the countryside, but even if you look at courtly cultures, if you look at the courtly culture of the Deccan, it's very different from the courtly culture of Tamil Nadu. It's very different from the courtly culture of the Gangetic Plains. So really, where is this argument of a national identity coming from? If you were to say that it's, it's, it's a similar set of cultures, I wouldn't have an issue with that. But to say that this is a national identity and they should have united against Tibetans or Arabs, I think is anachronistic because they didn't see themselves as being fundamentally more similar and sharing kind of territorial sovereignty with other Hindu kings as opposed to Tibetan kings. To them, they were all dangerous. They were all rivals. Right. So a bit yeah, of a and I, think, I hope it answers the question. No, no, it does. It does. Um, and I think that's kind of <clears> obvious <throat> to a reader. Like if, if you keep reading about the Chalukya's attacks um, on the Pallavas and they would, they're happy to take help from the Chinese, I'm sure, any time to uh, kind of uh, not have that loss of face as a punching bag for these guys. So I'm sure they're not thinking territory in that sense that, you know, even though we are fighting, but we have one unified, um, some identity, whether it's geographic or cultural. So, so yeah, thanks for that. And I think you spoke about also another very um, ironic point where we, when we read history, um, already, you know, very scrap for resources. I'm sure historians are in trying to figure uh, how exactly things happen. And I'm, I'm, I'm really happy that in so many places you've written that maybe this happened, maybe that happened. And I'm, I'm glad that we are coming from a place of not overconfidence that I know exactly what happened. You know, so that's great. But um, I think uh, even in these stories, like you, uh, when you spoke of it as well, so there's this whole elite culture, which means that we'll never really know what happened to the lives of everyday people. So it's still like a very small percentage of people who are forever in this, um, you know, grab for opportunity and ambition that we're still reading about. Um, so one, of course, is that is a general lament from a reader that. Um, you know, like they say, until the lions turn around and tell their story, it will always be the story of the hunter than the hunted. So um, that's certainly one cap. And uh, which kind of brings me to my um, second question around, um, you know, the drift of the book largely has been, and um, I, I think it's, it's your intent to convey uh, throughout the book that uh, the use of religion was more a means of, establishing legitimacy for the king who wants uh, or the ruler who wants to um, be on top um, more of a propaganda whether it's like the temple building or the performance of rituals or the sanskritization of the languages um, rather than um, an outcome of devotion so given also the fact that you've spoken about it and it's not hard to understand that much of what we are reading now is coming from um, the prashastis like you said which uh, give a very lopsided view because it's a commissioned affair from the rich people from the richest of folks so it's going to have only one kind of narrative so we we can be assured that we don't know the truth um hence my question that when you attribute uh, political ambition and um, motive to building temples or performing rituals. How do you qualify it conclusively that I know this for sure, that the reason was a thirst for power and being able to legitimize that you are nearer to gods and deities than um, others? How do you conclusively say that as a historian? So that's a that's a really good question. Um, I want to say at the outset that yes, you're absolutely correct in saying that there are some things that we can't absolutely know. And it's very important as historians to be humble about that and to say that here's what we know, here's why we think we know it, and here's where what we can't know right now, 
but could potentially be answered if you were to find different kinds of evidence and that our conclusions as historians um, can always change. And that really is the, is the nature of any kind of organized system of thought, whether it's science or it's history. We need to be open to the idea of changing our opinions as new evidence comes forth. Um, now, as far as the politics of temple building is concerned, um, I think that you're correct in saying that we can't be absolutely certain that all of them were built for political reasons. But at the same time, it's it would be very strange to, given the kind of texts that are being produced in the medieval period, not just in Prashasis, but especially religious texts, there's a lot of rituals that are specifically concerned with making sure the king is fortunate in war, for example, or with establishing the king essentially as a deified form in a linga so that after he dies, he will essentially reside within that. Now, to say that the king was doing this only for politics is, of course, different. We have to understand that these people saw their world in a way that is so different from us that they might as well be from a different planet, um, or really a younger planet, as it were. So if you were to... <clears throat> so I have something in my throat. This is the downside of living in Delhi, unfortunately. Um, so now... Like any ambitious person, I think that a medieval king would have sought to establish power, to express it, to receive consent from his subjects and from the other elites that are under him. And once he obtains that power, he is going to try and express his, reinforce or really reinforce the systems that he believed granted him that power, right? now. As today, um, I myself, I'm not really a very religious person. So when I see, for example, a particular kind of political system being successful, I don't necessarily believe that it's happening because a god wants that political system to flourish. Um, but in the medieval period, not a lot of people believed that the world could function without gods. Gods were just taken for granted in the way that we take gravity for granted. It's not like we're going around saying, you know, hail gravity, praise gravity, uh, and building temples to gravity. We just say, yeah, gravity exists, and here's what we can do with it, right? It's the same thing with medieval kings and their gods. They're like, the gods exist. This is what the gods want. If we give the gods this, the gods will give us this. And that's essentially what these temples are. If you were to read any text of, of, the, of the Shaiva Agamas, they're very clear that, okay, you build a temple of this size, you get this benefits for your kingdom. And that is like, for example, reigns, for example, the long life of the king. They're, and they're extraordinarily specific. They're like, you want such and such blessings, you give such and such things to this number of Brahmins, and you ask them to do this, this ritual, and they will do exactly that for you. Now, I don't think that everybody was being completely cynical in their approach to this. They thought about temples, as I, as I said in the book, as engines, where essentially the material success that you're obtaining through warfare or through through um, bringing out agrarian revenues, you reinvest them in a temple, you give them to a god, and the god will give you more stuff in return. Now, whether that is actually true, and that's how... Sorry, just give me one second. Can you guys hear me? Yeah, now whether that's actually true, um, I think with the benefit of hindsight, we can say that uh, no, the gods were not interested in granting eternal dominion and eternal life to these kings as they believed. But that doesn't change the fact that a lot of them did believe it. They did believe that by doing all these things. And keep in mind, a lot of the stuff they're doing is extremely morally grave. They generally seem to believe that going out on these raids and doing these very often horrific things and then reinvesting them in a temple is going to lead to benefits for themselves, of course, but also for the kingdom at large. So these people aren't monsters. They do have a sense of morality, but it's a morality that's completely different from ours. And also, there were more than a few medieval people who didn't believe in the things that they were doing. There's this fascinating um, mention in the Vikramanka Deva Charitam uh, by uh, Bilhana, who was a court poet of Vikramaitya VI, who was one of the last major characters in the book. And he actually says that there are so many people who within who, who in their in their minds believe that haha all of this is nonsense and will still build temples to shiva and and he's obviously condemning them as horrible people 
but keep in mind there is a poet in an elite and possibly one of the wealthiest and most powerful courts in south asia at the time and he is very clearly aware that there are people who are who know this all you know it's all window washing it's all window dressing for 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 people um so once again i i think it's very important to remember the medieval world is as complex as ours there are people the people who lived in it were are as complex as we are just as we have people today who are genuinely devout and believe that you know the gods will give them things there were medieval people who believed that and just as there are people who are cynical and know how to exploit religion for their political advancement there were medieval people did that as well sure yeah no thanks thanks for that i think uh, um that's our i mean that would be take away of any reader um, as well while reading the book there's a consistent trend and you may shy away from analyzing it and attributing it to a particular cause but um, but yeah i think we can we left to our own uh, take away from that easy to see for some of us perhaps not so much for others all right i know kamini has a bunch of questions um so yeah I'll, go ahead go ahead kamini Anirudh, it was great to hear you, or very interesting to hear you describe religion as chemistry. Almost, you put this chemical and you put this chemical together, and it gives you something else. And everybody knows the formula, and you know exactly what you have to do. So, yeah, that, that was very interesting. But also going back a little bit to the point of what what do we know? What can we tell with any level of confidence or not? One of the things that uh, Nidhi and I often dwell on is the role of women. in societies and historical societies um i was particularly struck by this sentence in your book i'm going to just read that out the capture of women in raids and war in medieval india is extremely well documented and we have repeatedly seen how violence against enemy women was associated with martial success and royal virility on the other hand ostentatious respect for the high born wives and daughters of one's subjects was considered a mark of chivalry it is rare to find a medieval king claiming to respect women as people i mean on the one hand it made me think of historical continuity in the sense that the treatment of women for their instrumental value continues uh, to persist but it also made me think of for example lok mahadevi and how much of an exception she seems to be for the times and in you know more in general about the role of women at that uh, time i wanted to hear you tell me a little bit more Uh, about women of that time one for example do we have any example of a sovereign queen regent from that time similar to let's say razia sultan from the deccan sultanate you've talked about lok mahadevi and she had certain rights but really a broader in you know queen in a broader sense and also when thinking about somebody like lok mahadevi claiming the power that she did and there aren't a lot of mentions of women uh, that powerful in the book was it a result simply of a particular set of circumstances that came together for her such as a supportive thing or a sign of changing times or something broader uh, than that once again that's a that's a really nuanced and thoughtful question so thank you for that um there are quite a few examples um, of medieval kings who ruled in their own name um, one of the most remarkable examples of course is didda who was a queen of kashmir um, roughly a contemporary of uh, raja raja chola and uh, his chalukya rivals actually um, who ruled for um, i think quite a few decades uh, issued coins in her own name built temples in her own name um, and repeatedly uh, i mean she's accused of all kinds of horrible things by a later chronicler supposedly you know she was murdering her own sons to make sure she stayed on power for longer but the fact of the matter is her sons do suspiciously all seem to die just after coming to the throne or don't reign for very long um so there's there's another there's actually a, but much more interesting than that in my opinion is, is this um is the bahmakara dynasty of odisha who of course start off as your your your, your average you know males ruling and women occasionally exercising power and making donations and so on but something changes um in i think the early uh, 9th century when the rashtrakuta king govinda the 3rd invades um and actually essentially kills off so many males of the of the royal line that the women suddenly become far more prominent um and this extraordinary situation happens where um the men seem to recede back into the shadows and all of a sudden it's women who are transferring power from one to the other so for example there's a queen who rules 
um, and then she transfers the throne to her daughter or to her co-wife uh, and the co-wife transfers it to like you know uh, to another royal woman so there's like a for the last i think 50 or 60 years of that dynasty it's just women who are exercising power um, and we're not sure exactly why that is it's possible that is because odisha was in this fairly unique situation where um it had considerable influence from um the indigenous peoples who were living uh, in the hilly tracts um who had a very different idea um of the role of a woman in society and because they were needed to uphold um their military force were needed to uphold the sanctity of the kingdom or really the stability of the kingdom to use a better word um queens were by default able to exercise more and more power actually uh, to exercise the primary power in the state which is a really extraordinary and unique circumstance um but unfortunately that does not seem to have happened um in the or really i don't know why i'm saying unfortunately because royal women could be exactly as nasty as their male relatives could be um but it does not seem to be the case i think that seems to be a very unique set of circumstances that don't seem to have been um replicated in similar ways in the rest of the subcontinent um so and and to and to to bring the question to lokamahadevi i think that once again i think that her status is extraordinary because of this particular kind of uh, historical circumstance i do think that it must have been uh, to a great extent due to her own personality and talents but also because she herself was a princess in her own right um, and her father was an important ally of the chalukyas and they needed to have her uh, and her family by extension um on their good side um and i think that that's quite interesting because i think you can really see it as a parallel to the present day um because as much as i think we have made far far more progress than the medieval world ever did in terms of how we treat women there's still a really long way to go and by and large it's women of privilege who tend to be able to occupy and to be successful in male spaces um and that's exactly what we see in the medieval world as well where it's women of privilege who are aristocratic or connected to the king or otherwise have their own resources who are able to essentially make their way in 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 a male world um so i hope that answers your question but i do also want to add that i i think that there's something going on um which again i just have a a theory which is going to be very difficult to prove because we don't have the epigraphic sources to kind of back it up but i have been over the last couple of weekends so i traveled to uh, elora and also to bhuvaneshwar and um i examined the iconography like close up of a lot of medieval temples and i was pleasantly surprised to see there's a lot of depictions of queens um on these temple walls um usually on the gateways of these temples but very often on the walls as well there are women who are depicted with attendants and with a with a imperial parasol over their heads um far more often than the males of their families usually are um and i think that that could very well be because a lot of the historians who wrote the most definitive histories of the medieval period were um usually upper caste men uh, who had nationalist leanings and who who i think might not have been necessarily open to the idea that women in medieval society could have been far more prominent than we otherwise think um now like i said just because they depict on temples doesn't automatically make them primary patrons but i do think that indicates that they're more important than we give them credit for and really what is going on in courts um even though it's the males who are the most visible because they're the ones who end up commanding the resources and therefore making the inscription and so on i think that a lot of issues from especially if you were to think of succession um is at the end of the day down to the women of the palace and the way that they're able to play the political game um and the last point i'd like to make on this is also that they may not have necessarily thought about identity the same way as we do um i think that the 21st century is rather unique in that our identities are thought of primarily as linked to our genders and to our sexualities um but that has not always been the case through most of human history um and i think that one could argue that royal women rather than seeing themselves as women first would have seen themselves as royals first um and they ne- would not necessarily have um they might not necessarily have been sympathetic to the idea of female emancipation as a whole um because keep in mind that these are these are this is a world where 
inequality is part of it. it it's it's part of it to such a fundamental level that the elite genuinely believes that they are a world above the commoners and need to rule them in a particular way for their world to run in a particular way. Um, so a bunch of thoughts on this, but I think it does uh, hopefully shed some light on, on, on the complexities uh, of, of this period that we're talking about. Absolutely. Very, very nuanced and a lot to think uh, about that. But I, I find it very fascinating what you describe about seeing in Elora uh, and Bhuvaneshwar, did you say as well? Yeah, the, you know, seeing the depictions of uh, powerful women, let's say, you know, or queens perhaps, or or the elite uh, women get, getting so much representation on the walls there, even though there is under-representation uh for them in in other types of material and so on so that's interesting and again also goes back to who's telling the history a point nidhi uh made earlier uh i'm slightly digressing but i only today earlier read uh the statement by one of the iit deans about you know the representation of lower caste members in faculty in in our elite institutions and they said under representation is not necessarily discrimination which is something to consider or think about separately and you know uh, how we think about it but yeah it, it, very very useful to have your thoughts and the you know complexity around thinking uh, about it now i'm also you know part international trade scholar so i found the discussion of trade networks in your book really really fascinating you know or controlled and organized by the deccan kingdoms especially in a time that where it would have been an enormous undertaking to mass produce and ship products across large distances in an organized uh, manner. So that, that to me was really, really quite fascinating to read about. You mentioned also, and I'm quoting now, if not for the roaring trade of the medieval Indian Ocean world, both India's coastline and the great cities in its interior would have looked profoundly different. Uh, and I'd love for you to reflect on this a bit more. Uh, what was the role that trade played both in progressing the geopolitical motivations of the kings, which you talk a bit about, but also and especially, if we can say, in the lives of the ordinary people. Was trade, for example, driven primarily by the demands of the elite and the nobility, or was it consumed more largely by the general population? Uh, and then, you know, we get a glimpse of the pottery from China and what, what was sort of being produced in factories there. Were there Deccans, were there any specialisms coming from the Deccan at that time as well? Um, once again, excellent question. Um, the Deccan has always been known. Um, in fact, for as long as there have been Deccan cities and polities, um, the Deccan has been trading in cotton. Um, to the extent that I think um, William Dalrymple makes his case brilliantly in his uh, in his forthcoming book, um, the 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 network of trade routes that we call the Silk Roads um, should actually be known as the Cotton Roads, um, and these were not primarily happening; these exchanges were not happening over land but over seas, um, and it was not primarily Rome and China that were trading, but really Rome and India. That was really the defining interaction of, of the ancient world, um, but the medieval world, of course, is a very different one. Um, and but in in the sense that textiles remained important, I think that it does have that continuity, um, and it is very clear from the mentions of Indian textiles, the copious mentions of in Indian textiles, um, in a number of different texts, uh, from um, Arab texts to actual archaeological evidence from Egypt, for example, where um, Gujarati textiles um, from as early as the 1300s have been discovered. Um, to the appearance of like these uh, Indian textile motifs, like deep inland in Indonesia, both through imports and also through replication, it is very clear that there were massive textile uh, industries in India. But unfortunately, unlike ceramics, textile industries don't leave an archaeological record, um, which is which is an absolute shame. Um, but I do I do think that excavations can at least address this partially. Um, I, I think that the greatest archaeological story of the 21st century that's still waiting to be written um, is the eventual excavation of Manyaketa, the Rashtrakuta capital. Um, whenever it's found, however it's found, whoever finds it is going to uncover an aspect of this medieval world that is, that is going to completely dismiss a lot of the ideas we have about it and completely change our understanding of this time. 
Um, so, but with that said, um, to to move to the to the next aspect of your question, which is the the actual um, extent of of, of 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 global trade, um, at least as far as commoners and so on were concerned, um, we have to keep in mind that in the medieval world, most people didn't actually get to travel a lot. Um, if you were if you were born in your village, you might see maybe the next five villages. You might go to like a temple that's like a week away at most um, for a pilgrimage. Maybe if your child is born or something like that, maybe your your grandpa will have a story about how he once saw an army and everybody thinks he's like a moron and is making this up. But by and large, most people didn't get to travel a lot in the medieval world because it was a dangerous world. Um, if you were to look at uh, the stones that have been left by merchants, a commemorative stones, uh, or even like merchant inscriptions, you, you'll find the medieval merchants invariably describe themselves as being armed to the teeth, uh, because they had to be, because moving around and like actually enjoying the safety of roadways and all that was not something that the state was too concerned with, because the state was more interested in agrarian revenue rather than in trade revenue. They were in, like courtly elites were interested in trade to the extent that they could get them these extraordinary luxuries and so on. That is a very important aspect of like medieval culture. There's this whole um, genre of text called the Kama Shastra, which is like obsessed with how do you make the most refined perfumes and like scented uh, fragrances to kind of like paint your, your, your body with and like where do you get the finest jewels from and where do you get the finest woods from and so on. So they are very, very well aware of the wider world. And um, this actually brings me back to the one of the earliest questions about like the concept of like nationality and how these people saw themselves. Um, there's this really, really interesting, uh, I think it's a ninth or 10th century text written by the poet Rajashekara uh, in central India. Um, and he's, his world seems to be confined mostly to like parts of like the, the Indus region and parts of like the Punjab half of the Gangetic Plains, a bit of central India and all and good and um, Gujarat to him is essentially a foreign land, which is like quite extraordinary to, to think about today. Um, but the way that he describes areas and lands and peoples is not that, okay, so in this land, there are these people who worship this God, but rather this land has this sacred mountain and this sacred river and its people produce these, these, these goods. He's not really interested in the gods at all, he's much more interested in the material culture of the world. And that's really how these medieval elites saw themselves in the world is that they were interested in obtaining rare luxuries and consuming them in this refined and aestheticized manner. And, and that's really what they have in common with elites all the way into Southeast Asia. And also, once you begin to look beyond the religious boundary, you realize that they had a lot in common with elites in Iran and in Central Asia and also in Iraq. Um, because all of these elites were had similar ideas of perfumes, they they told they had similar ideas of what the values of a court and, and the justice of a king was, and you can see that in the commonalities between the Arabian Nights uh, and so many Indian storytelling uh, compilations like the Kathasaritha Sagara. Um, so all of these really complicate our understanding of nationality first, um, but also in terms of the kind of exchanges that were happening in the medieval world. Um, I, I will say, though, that it's not the case that stuff that was being produced in the hinterland never found its way to global trade circuits because, and this was like a complete shock to me when I found out, because it's not just elite goods and like highly produced, highly skilled wares that were being traded, but also food. Um, people were trading even things that are as seemingly commonplace to us as a rice was being traded. Um, so even if you sitting in your village did not actually ever get to see a port uh, or ever get to see a court, um, you definitely could possibly have produced rice or some kind of like uh, pepper, for example, in, your, you know, in a plantation that was eventually purchased by a merchant and then conveyed in an armed caravan to the ports and then they ended up getting exported. So um, as you said, Kamni, like it, it is really extraordinary that all of this was actually happening in a world that did not have the kind of navigational expertise, uh, the kind of like sturdy built kind of metal ships that we have, that they were doing this is truly extraordinary. But I think it also shows you just how important it was to appear to be 
globalized for a court and also the kinds of insane profits that merchants were obviously making. Um, and once again, I think that that is another thread of medieval history that really needs to be explored more. And I hope to do it in my next book. Um, but I mean, the, the answer, I think, even in um, even in modern day financial uh, parlance, when you're looking at uh, irregularities, is to just figure out where the money goes and where the money is coming from. And in the medieval world, if merchants had that much money, then I think, and I think the evidence also suggests that they were more than willing to do rather disturbing things to get more of it. Yeah, actually, that's that's true. We've not talked about the merchants and how powerful some of them were, the kind of alliances they facilitated and they had, and what they could get away with. So that's true. That's a that's a whole different thread uh, that that we could talk about. But yes, very interesting to hear about trade patterns and what it meant to normal people. Even today, there would be farmers in villages in India who will never really step out of their district. Let's say. Uh, but they are actually producing things that are reaching UK, for example. Uh, so that continues to happen. And also for the elite, of course, uh, you know, the symbolic power that some of these cultural goods might uh, might provide would also exactly. be very important in addition to in addition to the money and, and so on. Uh, OK, with that, we will draw to a close. We can continue to talk for much longer because there is so much that is so interesting in this book uh, that we can pick and talk about. But Anirudh, thank you so much for making the time to speak with us today. Uh, your book is, for me, a wonderfully rich tapestry of ambition, struggles, and vulnerabilities. And it was a joy to read it and learn about the medieval history uh, of the Deccan. I thought uh, when I was reading it that as much as it is about dynasties, it is also about the particular sets of circumstances, challenges, and opportunities that each ruler within a dynasty, for example, faced uh, for themselves and what they made of it. So that that really made it very interesting and complex uh, for me. But more broadly, this is not a simplistic story, not a good versus evil telling of history. It really brings to us kings not as heroes, but as humans with all the human imperfections and the beauty that comes with that. And that's what makes the book so nuanced for me. So to all of our listeners, if you haven't yet uh, read the book, please pick up a copy of The Lords of the Deccan for an exceptionally well-researched book on a part of Indian history that is relatively underrepresented uh, so far. Thank you very much, Anirudh. Complete joy speaking with you. Thank you, Kamini. That was, that was really one of the most thoughtful and nuanced conversations I've had about the book since it's come out. And thank you for that wonderful summary. As, as an author, there's no greater compliment to me than people actually really engaging with my work and ideas. So thank you for like understanding it so well. Um, and to you also, Nidhi, for making sure this conversation happened and for um, and to both of you for your deeply thought out uh, and erudite questions.